Hello everyone. Good day and uh, we came back with a whole new episode and then this episode is very special because uh, this is first time ever we're having a these kind of uh, guest in our studio and uh, hopefully the first and uh, many more in the future we could have this kind of per- person so what kind of person i mean is uh, she's a biomolecular archaeologist are you related with that if so that's amazing if not you're going to find out what it is exactly and she's a, a doctor from harvard and she earned a harvard degree in 2010 uh christina warner hello very welcome to our studio and um, i'm really honored and thankful to have you today and have this deep conversation about your profession thanks so much for having me well it could be short and simple to ask you please give us a brief intro about your life and who you are what have you done Uh, so far. Okay. Um, well, so I'm a biomolecular archaeologist, which mm-hmm. means that um, I'm an archaeologist. I'm interested in questions about the past and understanding our, our human history. But the tools I use are a little different. So I use the tools of the sciences. I use uh, biology, chemistry, genetics um, to try to solve questions that have vexed scientists and archaeologists for many, many years uh, using these new techniques. Um, I started out early in my career. Um, I worked in Central America studying the ancient Maya. And, and then over time, I started working in ancient Europe. And I just seemed to be keep going east. And now I've been, having, I've been working on a, a project for the last five years in Mongolia and absolutely loving it. So I work on many different topics around the world. I'm the kind of person that gets called in when there's a really interesting question that no one knows how to answer. And then I try to bring in the techniques to do that. So what I've been doing here for the past five years is really trying to understand the history of dairying and milking in Mongolia. And um, it's turned out to be a really fascinating story. So uh, can I say that you done researching things in West Side and then you came to East Side? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. So uh, Mongolian um, history, ancient history, especially uh, diary, uh, that topic brought you uh mongolia or there was something else that uh maybe we don't know yeah no i mean i have a long-standing interest in food uh, food is always fascinating me where where food comes from how cuisines uh are, are started how they spread how they change and so every almost everywhere i've worked in the world that's been one question i've been fascinated by and for me personally i think one of the most interesting foods is dairy foods mm-hmm. um because dairy foods are at once the most natural foods that we as humans can consume it's what we consume as our only food for the first many months of life uh like all mammals and yet we're so different from all other mammals in that we continue to drink milk Uh, long into adulthood, we drink the milks of other animals. Uh, so it's really strange too. So milk is this very familiar and very unusual food. Mm-hmm. It's also one of the f- earliest manufactured foods. So if you look at how people have have created new foods over history, milk is actually one of the first things that people turned into a food by producing dairy products. And it goes back more than 9,000 years. So I've been very interested to understand How did this first start? How did it change? And also, many people around the world, it's estimated more than half of the world's population is lactose intolerant, meaning they don't digest milk well, and it gives them a lot of gastrointestinal 
distress. And so milk is this really fraught food where in certain parts of the world, it's the major food that people eat. And in other parts of the world, people find it absolutely indigestible. So this fascinates me. This is a food that touches on many places and time periods and it's deep within our human history and is, I think, a really misunderstood food. And so that's something that I've been trying to uh, bring together the tools of the natural sciences and archaeology to better understand. How did we come to produce and consume so much dairy, given all of the variation and how people digest it? Well, then let's touch that uh, misunderstanding part. So what we don't know about uh, milk, and then what was the reason that that other part of the world that can't consume milk, and can we fix it? It's a great question. So um, so the story of milk, and kind of the scientific understanding of milk digestion goes back to starting in about the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was realized that uh, by medical doctors who were looking at this, that some people could digest milk really well and other people could not. And it really wasn't understood Uh, what this was. And initially it was presented as a pathology, that if you couldn't drink milk uh, as an adult, then there was something wrong with you. Uh, We now know after decades of research, that's actually not what's happening at all. Um, All mammals uh, produce an enzyme in their intestines called lactase. Mm -hmm. And this enzyme breaks down the sugar that's present in milk, which is called lactose. Lactose is a disaccharide, which means it's actually two sugars that are linked together. And without this enzyme, you can't uh, absorb it. You can't break it down and use it for food. And so so this enzyme is really important. All mammals make lactase, um, and that's how infants of of all kinds uh, 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 derive their nutrition early in life. But what happens naturally across mammals is that you lose the ability to produce lactase as you age. And that's part of the weaning process. And that's true for humans and for dogs and for cats and for cows. I mean, it's just a mammalian trait. Um, And in the 1990s and early 2000s, it was discovered that um, there were certain populations around the world who had evolved mutations where they didn't stop producing lactase. In fact, they just continued to make lactase as if they were an infant for their entire lives. I happen to be one of those people. So I am homozygous, which means I have two copies of this mutation, which means I still produce as much lactase uh, today as I did when I was a baby. And this helps me to digest milk sugar. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of work was, uh, uh, medical research was put into this. And this was put forth as an explanation for why certain populations can tolerate milk in their diet and other populations can't. So they have lost the ability to produce lactase and therefore they're lactose intolerant. And this just seemed like a a kind of fully uh, explained medical phenomenon um, and a lot of the scientific community moved on. However, it never really made sense if you looked at the data closely. Um, And what brought me to Mongolia is Mongolia was always a perfect example of why this model doesn't work, because we know that people in Mongolia today don't have this mutation, and yet dairy is such an important part of the diet and has been for a very long time. So this whole medical argument and explanation for how this worked was really built around ignoring the Mongolian uh, situation. And when I realized this or kind of came across this in my work, I was absolutely fascinated by it. And I wanted to understand if there were other ways that people had adapted to consuming dairy diets that might not be related to this mutation that um, seemed to be the only explanation that people were putting forth in the medical uh, research. Okay. Uh, It happens to be me that I'm lactose intolerant. Mm 
So majority of the whole population is uh, lactose tolerant. But uh, is there any other food that we consume that affects to our tolerancy uh, to lactose? Have you seen any um, symptoms from other consumptions? Other foods? Yes. Well, there's lots of foods that certain people will have intolerances to. I mean, so what is happening with lactose intolerance? So what's actually happening within your body is that if you consume milk Mm -hmm. and it contains lactose, the sugar, It passes through your digestive tract, and if you don't make lactase, it keeps passing through your small intestine, and then it goes to your large intestine. Your large intestine is where your gut microbiome is. You have trillions of bacterial cells that are there, and they are more than happy to digest the lactose for you. The only problem is they produce lots of gas as a byproduct, and it can also lead to uh, diarrhea. So you you so the lactose does get digest it, but it's being digested by these bacteria instead of um, by your own body. And that's what contributes to the symptoms. Um, Now, different people will have different degrees of symptoms. And that is because really it's what the microbes themselves are doing determines the severity of the symptoms. So for me, one of the things that I started uh, thinking about very early on is could the gut microbiome be really involved? Could microbes be the key to understanding why um, some people have really severe lactose intolerance and other people have no lactose intolerance, even yes. though they're not making lactase? So that's what I wanted to, to come here to study. Mm-hmm. Um, have you done, I mean, have you guys concluded your research on that? So we, th- we, we have done a, now a large-scale research study, and we mm-hmm. have generated a lot of data that is extremely interesting. And it answers some of our questions, but it's actually opened up entirely new <laughs> questions, which is how research often goes. Um, but it's turned out to be even more interesting than we had thought, um, which I think is a good thing. So uh, what we have found is that the, the structure of the gut microbiome in Mongolia is different than other parts of the world. It shows a lot of features of adaptation to milk, but what we're finding is it's really different in different subpopulations. So for example, the gut microbiome in people in Hofskol is different from those in Bulgan, which is different from people in the Gobi, which is different from people in Ulaanbaatar. So we have these differences across Mongolia um, that I think are in part determined by diet and also the different types of animal milks that people are consuming. So it's gotten a lot more complicated than we originally thought. But what we do see is that certain groups um, in the countryside especially do seem to be adapted to dairy. So we had um, done something called a lactose challenge test where a person consumes a small cup of water with lactose sugar in it. Mm -hmm. And then we can measure the hydrogen in their breath. The hydrogen is made by the bacteria in the gut breaking it down. So what we see is that, for example, um, here in the city in Ulaanbaatar, about uh, three quarters of people will produce a lot of hydrogen, meaning most of that lactose is actually being digested in the, by the bacteria in their colon. And that is associated with lactose intolerance. But what we find in, for example, in Bulgan province, um, more than half of people don't produce any hydrogen at all. So they're digesting it really well. So we see this big difference in effect. Um, and now we're trying to work out the microbial basis of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, can, you trans- can we transplant those microbiomes, taking it, from, from, taking, it, taking it out from hoop school people and put it to gobby people? And can we like, uh, 
make change between those people. Yeah, so one of the really interesting things about your microbiome, unlike your genome, I mean, you mm-hmm. can't change your genome. Your genome is the way it is. Yes. But your microbiome is actually quite plastic. It can change, and it does change. So when you change your diet, when you change your food, your microbiome adapts to it. Mm-hmm. So I think this is something that's really interesting with lactose intolerance because it suggests but that perhaps with small changes to the diet or just better understanding how the gut microbiome responds to different foods, you could actually, through just modifying your diet, modifying the types of fermentation microbes that are used to make the dairy products, or through something more extreme like a transplantation, you could actually completely change the way you digest uh, dairy products. So that, I think, is really interesting from a medical perspective because um, there's a lot more room to uh, change your your uh, your gastrointestinal response by working with and understanding the microbiome. Mm-hmm. So after... After you guys uh, published the conclusion of the research, uh, what kind of products or what kind of solutions uh, people might have from your conclusion and then uh, make it product or service to the public? Yeah, well, we're still quite far away from that at this point. But I do think one of the things we see evidence for is uh, really strong probiotics in um, uh, countryside diets. So this is something we're really excited to study more. We are currently analyzing the genomes of many of the bacteria and yeasts that are um, uh, producing these uh, products. And they're quite interesting, and they're really distinct um, from some of the other bacteria that are used in more globally distributed dairy products, in particular those in IROG. And what we see, too, is we see really high levels of these bacteria in the gut microbiome of people who are adapted to dairy. So uh, herding people have really high levels of them, especially in Bulgan and Hovskol province. Um, in fact, they have some of the highest levels we've seen in any population in the whole world. Mm-hmm. I've heard you guys are um, going to have an event on September to publish about this research, or it's something else? No, it's this research, but it's also broader. So we're looking at um, uh, the whole history of dairy in Mongolia through this project. So for the past five years, we've been conducting a project to try to understand, well, when did dairying become important in Mongolia? How has it changed through time? How have people adapted to it? Um, and what does it mean today? And what does it mean for health today? So that's what the exhibit covers. Um, we have, for example, one of the things we were able to do was um, we were able to look at a tooth tartar, which is calcified dental plaque on teeth that everybody goes to the dentist to remove. We were able to look at that um, through the archaeological record and actually precisely determine when and where <coughs> daring first began in Mongolia and how it changed over time, how more animals were introduced. So um, that was something that was really not known before, is how old was dairying. Um, We can now trace it back to about 3000 BC. So that's 5000 years ago. So we have at least 5000 years of dairying uh, in Mongolia. And we can also show that the earliest animals that people relied on were mostly sheep and goats with some cattle. Mm -hmm. And then um, starting in the late Bronze Age, so starting around maybe 1200 BC, uh, people start milking horses for the first time. And then much later, we see um, during the uh, Mongol period, we see the first evidence of camel milking. Oh, that late. Yeah, it might be earlier, but we have not found any evidence of it. That's what about yak? Yeah, so yak is really interesting. Yak is actually quite hard to identify uh, because it's so similar to cattle. Its milk is so similar to cattle. Um, but yes, there is now evidence for yak milking by the medieval period, by kind of the Mongol era. We think it's older, but we just haven't quite um, uh, detected it yet. But yes. So we brought yak from somewhere else. 
Yeah, so they they seem to have been, have come from the Tibetan plateau. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Who brought that yaks? Yeah, that's a great question, and a lot of people have been trying to answer that one. I don't have the answer to that question. Uh, what about camels? So camels are native to the Gobi Desert and across Central Asia. It's not really well understood where exactly they were domesticated, but um, they it very well could have been in Mongolia. Mm-hmm. So. Mm, okay, I want to end this topic right over here. And um, oh, can I say one more thing that's important? Oh, sorry. So one thing. Wait, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, I want to leave this topic right over here. If you don't have nothing to say about it, well, just one more thing. Why this is also so important. Um, so one of the things that people assumed early on, for example, when they were looking at these earliest lactase persistence mutations, uh, this ability to produce lactase as an adult, is they assumed that um, that this mutation needed to be present for people to be dairying. And so, for example, this mutation is at high abundance or high prevalence in uh, European populations. So, for example, in Central Europe, about 70% of people have at least one copy. And in Scandinavia, it's even higher. It's 80%. And so what archaeologists did initially is they looked at the earliest Neolithic people, the earliest people who were milking in Europe, and they they went, used ancient DNA to try to show that they had these mutations as an explanation for why they were daring. But they didn't find it, which is, I think, amazing. We now know after many, many, many more studies on ancient DNA, having sequenced thousands and thousands of ancient genomes, that these mutations actually arise really late. They don't appear until the Bronze Age. They don't become common until the Iron Age. And we have more than 4,000 years of people, uh, even in Europe, uh, dairying before they have any uh, ability to um, digest milk genetically. And so I think this is really interesting. This, to me, was also a big motivator for me because it showed me that something else was also happening. The whole early history of milk has nothing to do with these mutations that the entire medical field says is necessary to digest milk. And actually, the early history must be based on some other adaptation. And that was also one of the reasons I was so interested in Mongolia because I thought maybe perhaps here we could see some examples of how other adaptations might develop wow that's that's huge research and then we didn't know about this research was ongoing and then uh, like thank god we're gonna have these uh, conclusions from from them and if you if you allow me to publish it uh, under the description and I, i would like to put the links of your uh, 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 documents sure well, thank you so there you go and now the second second uh, very interesting topic is about the book that you published uh, a few years back. It's a uh, ancient Maya Maya color. So, uh, what was the reason that you had to publish this book, and then what was uh, the the biggest uh, takeoff from this book? So this this is a book I, I published. Uh Several years ago now, um, I started my career actually working on uh, in Central America on the ancient Maya, mm-hmm. who have always fascinated me. Um, and one of the things that is I find really um, amazing about their art is that it it's it's extremely colorful, and it also uses um, technologies in different ways. Uh, that are not common or typical uh, worldwide. So uh, many people, when they think of color, they're thinking of paints. They might be thinking of dyes. Um, These are very typical ways that we color our world. But the Maya used many, many other um, materials as well. So stone, natural stones, uh, the uses of jade, for example. It's a beautiful green stone and turquoise. They also... um, 
used shell and and the iridescence of shell and mother of pearl was really important. But I think one thing that's really important to understanding their, their world of color is feathers. And um, they used feathers throughout all of their dress and their regalia. And so you have all these kind of different forms of color coming in, whether that's paints, dyes, shells, stones, and feathers. And so much of that doesn't get transmitted through the the art that survives over time. So, so much of their art would have been seen in person. For example, the feathers that they show, they show these Quetzal feathers. Most people have never seen a Quetzal feather. It's always just painted as green. But a Quetzal feather is iridescent. It's golden green. So it, it has these amazing structural properties that when it blows in the wind, it's, it shimmers between green and gold. It's absolutely gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something called a structural color because it's actually made by prismatic effects within the feather itself and not by a dye. So it's, um, it's really interesting because the color will never fade because it's not a dye. It can't break down. Mm-hmm. However, if you crush the feathers, if you bend the feathers or if the feather... If you push on the feathers too hard, it breaks that prism and they turn black. So this was something really interesting to me when you would see these images that were depicted through art of these rulers wearing these resplendent headdresses, trying to imagine what they would have looked like with these beautiful green shimmering gold headdresses. Mm -hmm. And also the amount of work that would have to go into producing them because even just by wearing them, you would damage them and they would lose their color. So you'd have to constantly replace them. Um, only male Quetzal birds make them, and they only have two of these feathers per bird. So the number of birds that would had to have been uh, used to make these was enormous. But their whole world was just colored in these amazing, vibrant, shimmering uh, colors. And I think that's really underappreciated today because all that survives are a few examples of murals and some pottery, which are these just very narrow windows into their this amazing color world they created. So I wanted to study the technologies they used. And the other thing that's really amazing about their paints, um, the way they made paints is really different than most other people in the world. So Um, Most people in the world make paints by finding minerals that naturally have a certain color. They grind up the mineral and they mix it with some sort of binder. So, for example, central Mexico, which is mountainous, is rich in minerals. And this is what they did. They uh, They used these mineral pigments. But the Maya region has almost no natural minerals. And so what they did is they developed dyes. And they would dye clay in these amazing range of colors. So actually their, their color palette is not coming from minerals, but it's coming from dyeing clay to make these vibrant, vibrant colors. So that was also something I thought was very interesting. What are the technologies that you found out that um, amazed your knowledge? And I want to touch if you know something something else on Mayan pyramids and how they built that thing. (laughs) And that's like the biggest question I ever had. Yeah, well, um, I mean, the pyramids that they built are amazing. Um, I was actually just in Belize uh, visiting um, uh, one of these sites, a classic Maya site, just two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Um, I've started up a new project there. Um, We're doing an ancient DNA study uh, that we've just started. We're super excited about it. Um, and we're analyzing about four, the genomes of about 400 individuals, including many of the Maya kings and queens. And we're going to try to understand how they're related to each other. Wow. And you to, already found those kings and queens. Yeah, yeah, we have. We found, we found many. 
many, many kings and queens uh, up and down this valley called the Belize Valley. And um, But we're also analyzing commoners. We're trying to analyze people at all levels of the social structure to try to understand um, ancient Maya society and how uh -huh. people were related to each other, how they engaged in strategic marriages and how they formed alliances. Um, and so I was just back um, actually visiting with a, a, a local Maya community that lives near the, um, the site today um, and uh, talking about the project. And we're really, we're all really excited about it. They're also really interested to know the history of their, their ancestors and the, the Maya, Maya kings and queens of the region. Um, but I think one thing that you know, I guess I guess it's amazing if you contrast it with Mongolia. So Mongolia has such like a long history of domesticated animals, yes. right? And using very powerful animals to move things. The Maya didn't have any beasts of burden. The only domesticated animals they had were small dogs. And in some parts of the area, uh, the region, they had turkeys and ducks. But that's it. So all of those temples that you see, which are huge structures, were entirely moved by hand. And I can tell you, just excavating them is backbreaking work. I can't imagine building them. Yeah. Um, but it would have taken an incredible amount of effort and coordination to build those structures. They are really um, strong. They are very, they are very much built to last. I think one thing people don't um, always think about is this whole region is so prone to hurricanes. They are the one thing that never is destroyed by a hurricane. They are really powerfully built structures. Mm -hmm. It's like uh, these days, if Mayan were living, we would call them tech-savvy people, right? <laughs> so I don't know why, uh, what kind of genomes they have that uh, they can uh, bring out some innovative technological solutions to anything like back in the days those mayan days uh those researchers researchers found out that they were doing um surgery in human brain right so how like surgery in human ba brain in how many years ago it's like is that possible like i'm so fascinated to know about uh, what's the reason that they know to do things like yeah well um so i mean i think one thing that one thing that's important to know is there's still millions of maya people today there's more than 20 maya languages spoken mm -hmm. so what happens during the the classic period you have this you you have this fluorescence of of ancient maya society and then they have a political collapse um, it's not exactly known what happens in precise details but it seems to be a series of uh environmental catastrophes that then precipitate a, a major political conflict and warfare and the different um, the different kind of cities end up destroying each other and the society collapses although the people themselves just disperse um, but are still there so but the Maya I mean they have an incredibly fascinating history. In fact, the entire region, there's many other groups besides the Maya. Um, you also have the Zapotec and the Mixtec, and you have uh, various Nahua peoples to the northwest. Um, th they were, they had an incredibly developed and sophisticated uh, technology um, in many ways. Uh, in, I mean, in art um, and in the technology of producing artistic materials, but also in medicine. Um, we have some really amazing surviving documents from the 16th century of, of what are called herbals or like recipe books for different medicinal cures for a whole range of different ailments. Um, no, they had a, they had very sophisticated technology. They had um, quite advanced astronomy, um, and so the 
the Maya and, and neighboring peoples had a really advanced and sophisticated society. Mm-hmm. Okay, now next topic, I would like to touch on uh, the documentary that you, you were part of it, uh, Secrets of the Sky Caves. And that was the award-winning children's book and uh, Netflix and PBS Nova's uh, work. So what was it about? And uh, there was a study about ancient Nepal, right? Exactly. So um, this project started because I, I joined a team. We were really interested in understanding the earliest trade routes through the Himalayas. Um, the Himalayas are, they have the highest mountains in the world. Mm. Um, it is very difficult to cross them, and yet extreme conditions. <laughs> extreme conditions, and yet people did it, and they did it in prehistory. Um, it is one of the last regions of the world that's colonized by people mm-hmm. because it is so difficult. But it is colonized by around 1500 uh, BC. People start to live in these passes through the Himalayan mountains. There's a particular um, region uh, they called the Kaligandaki River Valley, and it forms the n- lowest natural pass through the Himalayan mountains. And that's where these first people came and settled and then developed a trade route that connected the Tibetan Plateau with uh, further down in South Asia. Who they were? Like people so, from Mongolia? <laughs> yes, this was, this was the big question that attracted us there because what had happened was... Um, Uh, a series of earthquakes had disturbed a number of tombs along these trade routes and exposed uh, these um, archaeological sites. And we got invited to come in because they were being rapidly destroyed because once they were exposed, they were up in the cliffs, eagles started moving in, and the eagles would push the bones out of the caves. And so all of this archaeology and this history was being lost very rapidly. So we came um, to try to study it and to try to understand who these people were, what their history was. And so we began this project throughout the valley trying to map when and where these traders lived. Um, Initially, all of the work focused on the materials in the tombs, and they came from everywhere. We have copper from south, from like southern India. There's carnelian, which is probably coming from the um, uh, Iranian plateau. There was silk that was coming from China. There's uh, things like bamboo, which doesn't grow anywhere near the Himalayan mountains. And there was even wooden bowls that still had rice inside of them because the preservation was so incredibly good given the cold and dry conditions. So we could see all of these goods that were coming from far-flung places, thousands of kilometers away, who were these people? And we couldn't really determine it because because there were so many different goods from so many different places. Um, so what we ended up doing was we did a genetic study. We collected um, a, a tooth from each individual, and we were able to extract uh, DNA from that person. We were able to reconstruct their genomes and then compare them to living people today and also to other ancient people that had been studied. What was the biggest difference? Um, well, what we see actually is that they seem to be the direct descendants of prior people who had lived <coughs> in the Tibetan plateau. So it seems that these were uh, plateau people uh-huh. who had come down through the passes and set up sites where they then engaged in trade with people further south. Um, and we see a little bit of... Um, Uh, what's called admixture or genetic mixture with some of these South Asian populations, but only to a very small degree. So they really do seem to have come from the north um, down uh, down these valleys and colonize them and then controlled the trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, just now, um, one question comes to my mind about uh, genetics. So there's a people who saying, uh, I mean, there were researchers uh, findings uh, that uh, uh, Chinggis Khan's uh, 
genetics is the most popular uh, gene over the uh, earth. Is that true? Like, well, so people talk about how his Y chromosome has spread really yeah. far and wide, and there are some there are some uh, particular haplogroups that are very uh, widespread. Although nobody actually knows what his uh, what his Y chromosome was because he's never been found. But that's the assumption. But yeah. certainly, he had an enormous impact, and we see that genetically. Actually, um, we had done another study uh, in Mongolia specifically to try to reconstruct the population of his uh, the population history of Mongolia over six thousand years yes. to really understand how it had changed through time. And what we found is actually it's incredibly dynamic. Um, Mongolia begins um, with really two very distinct populations. The people in the east and the people in the west were genetically very different. Um, they were separated for thousands of years with essentially no intermarriage. They probably spoke really different languages. Um, and it's only around uh, 200 BC that those two populations come together for the mm -hmm. first time. And it's out of that, this period of tremendous political turmoil, that you actually get the, the, the beginning of the Xiongnu Empire. And then after that, that kind of the genetic or that kind of like geographic distance completely disappears. And we see this mixing across all of uh, Mongolia. And at the same time, we see lots of other groups coming in. So that period from about 200 BC to 100 AD, we see the highest levels of genetic diversity and heterogeneity in Mongolia's history. Um, you basically, almost the entire range of genetic diversity that's seen in all of Asia today is present in Mongolia during that period. It's an, it was an incredible time. Mm -hmm. uh I've heard from someone who went to Peru, and then in Peruvian mu museum, there's uh, some findings that says uh, nomads from Central Asia went up to Siberia and go through Alaska and Siberia, and then went down to the South American side. So, which is those Mayan and Aztecas? Those those people were originated from Central Asian nomads so um what what do you think about from these findings well so the could the, be true or not well so the the americas are colonized uh during the pleistocene so mm -hmm. um you know more than fourteen thousand years ago what's interesting what we do know now is that um, at that time there were two broadly different genetic groups that were living in um, northern Asia at that time, kind of northern, northeastern Asia. Mm -hmm. um, we call them the ancient um, uh, northeast Asian population, or the ANA, and the um, ancient, um, the ANE, um, is another group that's kind of around Lake Baikal. And they're pretty separate for much of the Pleistocene. Um, and what ends up happening is that the A&E group, um, see, it's, it's the ancestral North Eurasians, they end up becoming the ancestors of most of the people of the Americas. So that group that also was living in Siberia at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, what we see is that later on, both of those groups contribute to the people who make up the populations of Mongolia today. Although today there is much more of the ancestry from the ANA group, the, the other group, um, whereas the ANE group is more common uh, a little bit further west. Okay. Wow. Uh, and um, let's get back to the Nepal uh, situation. So, what was uh, their major consumption um, on food? Like what they eat? Uh, they were tall people. 
we we believe the mountain people <laughs> are tall people and maybe a bit stronger than um, well, the mountain, tropical weather. I don't know. The mountain are. people, especially in the Himalayas, uh, tend to be a little bit uh, smaller because smaller. of the low oxygen levels. Yeah. Um, but uh, but no, the the kinds of foods that we found. Uh, so we found this. I found a bowl full of rice, and we found um, a really interesting. We found a, a cauldron, a big copper cauldron that looked like it held a beverage. You could e- there was even a ladle to scoop it with, and there were even rings of oxidation rings within the the cauldron as it had evaporated. And so, but but everything in it had evaporated away. So just looking at it, you couldn't tell what it might have uh, held. Uh, we actually took samples from the residue at the bottom, and we did a genetic analysis on it. And we found that it's basically something very, very similar to a beverage still consumed today in the area called Chang, which is a type of barley beer. Um, it's, uh, and yeah, it's very, very popular and, and, it, and it just showed how, how, how long people have loved this fermented beverage. Um, and it's a really interesting beer. It's a sour beer. Sometimes people even describe it almost like a wine. Um, but it has this really interesting mix of lactic acid bacteria and, um, lactic lactic acid bacteria uh-huh. so they're bacteria that break down um the sugars that are present in the in the barley and they turn it into alcohol and also lactic acid which gives it this kind of smooth flavor um that's similar to what dairy products taste like yes and uh, also they had um a number of different kinds of yeasts that also made the alcohol so we and we've yeast yeast like um like i don't know what like it brewer's is brewer's yeasts uh. And uh, they, they, they produce alcohol. So we were able to show it was this Chang, uh, Chang beer that they would have consumed. And we can even now go further and not just say, oh, this yeast was here or this, this bacteria was here. We've actually fully reconstructed their genomes. So we can actually say what genes they had, what flavors they may have produced. And so that's what we're working on there. But they, yeah, so they would have, um, this uh, Chang beer would have been quite important. But they also consumed uh, dairy products. So they, were, they had, um, especially goats, they would milk goats and yaks as well and to a lesser extent they also had sheep and cattle sheep and cattle mm-hmm. wow but a main focus on goats and yaks yeah what was the degree of alcohol on that beer yeah it probably was it probably around five to six percent is what we think it would have been so i i think they would have had a good time drinking it yeah gets you tipsy <laughs> after a few drinks uh well so like i don't know you have the answer for this question or not but uh just now like I realized that like this side of the world has more population than any other side of the world, right? And in uh, like China and uh, all those Southeast Asian countries and if we include India, we are more populated than any other civilizations now. So like what was the reason that we are so better at producing people, right? Like <laughs> So numerous? Yeah, numerous. And then is there any uh, genotype on that field? Like, well, I, uh, what was the reason? Yeah, why, why are populations <laughs> so big? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think a lot of it has to do with food availability. Um, there you ha- go. Having, having enough food to feed a really large population. And the places that have these really high uh, population densities are also have really excellent agricultural land. Mm-hmm. But South... I mean... Uh, South America mm-hmm. could be a good place, right? Yeah, well, you have um, you have the Andes Mountains, which have been colonized for a long time, although it's difficult. I mean, they also had incredibly uh, sophisticated ancient societies as well, um, and they grew maize and a whole <laughs> range of crops. Um, 
but it's it's mountain territory, so it's hard to have a very large population in a really mountainous region. Ah. And then down, if you go like to the east, I mean, it's you have the rainforest, and you you can you also can't support really large populations in a rainforest environment because there's so much vegetation, and so you can clear it. Um, and there are ways. We now realize that those populations in the past that were in the rainforest were probably much larger than we than we have thought before, mm-hmm. but um, not approaching like present day levels like you see in Asia. That's that's true. But many of the world's, um, you know, uh, beloved crops come from the Americas. Um, so a lot of the, the root crops um, like uh, taro and um, a sweet potato and things, those, those come from the Americas. You also have foods, uh, maize, um, which is one of the most widely cultivated grains today, um, tomatoes, chocolate, vanilla, um, squash, chili peppers. These all come from the Americas. Mm-hmm. Have you have you eaten uh, tamales? Yes, I love tamales. Of course, wow. <laughs> they're so good. I miss tamales. And did you know that the classic Maya pots have pictures of tamales on them? Oh yeah. Yeah, it's one of the most commonly depicted foods. Can you cook tamales? Yeah, yeah, I like cooking tamales. I mean, I it's think a lot after of this work, podcast, you should cook <laughs> one tamale for me. <laughs> Yeah, I spent a long time in Mexico actually when I was uh, in graduate school, and I I absolutely love the food. You must be, uh, but you know while you're studying these uh, foods, and uh, especially when you study the gen- genetic sequencings, so you for sure you found out many uh, diets right over the years. Mm-hmm. And is there any time that uh, time frame that you can you can say that? People can change their uh, choose of uh, foods like after that amount of years, and then maybe it's like uh, maybe uh, I just want to know the future. So how often we change our diets, mm. and maybe because of the uh, maybe because of this uh, global warming issue might lead us to change our way we consume foods. I think we're yeah. gonna. I think we're gonna have to. Is it um, true that global warming is like a true situation? There's a, some conspiracy theory that global warming is uh, like a very, um, how do you say, well directed drama. Yeah, that's not true. <laughs> I mean, no, we we have profoundly impacted um, our atmosphere and. I mean, as an archaeologist, this actually impacts us a lot because it affects our radiocarbon dating. In fact, increasingly, so as we start burning more and more fossil fuels, our ability to use radiocarbon dating actually goes down because so much old carbon is being pumped into the atmosphere. Uh-huh. A lot of people, they've heard the term fossil fuels and they don't really know why it's called a fossil fuel. So why is it a fossil? Um, it's because it's literally a fossil. So uh, coal and oil, uh, let's take coal for example, um, it's basically the, the dead trees of the Carboniferous period. So this was a period in Earth's past before there were fungi that could really break down wood. And so these massive forests grew up all over the world, and as the trees died, they would just fall over, but they wouldn't really decay. And over time, as more vegetation fell on them and compressed them and compressed them, they turned into coal. So there's this layer from the Carboniferous all over the world, and it's limited. And as we burn that, we're literally just burning 
trees that are you know millions of years old and all of that carbon dioxide from the burning goes into our atmosphere and none of that carbon has radiocarbon in it so it actually reduces the radiocarbon in the atmosphere and that messes up our ability to do radiocarbon dating so i can say definitely as an archaeologist it's super frustrating we see the effects of this all, all the time in that it's really impacting our ability to do dating um, but yeah no we 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 have profoundly impacted uh, our environment and our atmosphere and it's causing rapid climate change. It also impacts our ability to reconstruct diets. So uh, plants, there's different types of photosynthesis that plants use. There's not just one type, there's actually multiple types. And um, we can take advantage of that in analyzing ancient samples to try to reconstruct the diets of ancient people. But because of the contamination we put into the atmosphere, it's actually interfering to some degree with our ability to do that. Um, so yeah, we see these effects even in archaeology um, of, of um, humans' alteration of, of the atmosphere and our, and our geology. And as we put more and more carbon into the atmosphere, our planet just gets warmer and warmer, and that's going to change where plants can grow, how plants can grow. Um, it's going to start having really major uh, effects. We already see it very soon. I mean, a lot of people get confused because they hear warming and they expect all the temperature to go up at once. But really what it does is it causes climate volatility. So you have... Excuse me, volatility. Yeah, so unpredictable un wow. unpredictable behavior. So things like floods or droughts. Uh, so just extreme... That's exactly happening now. Extreme unpredictable events are going to increase. That's basically what climate change causes. Mm -hmm. So... Like, let me let me construct this question very carefully. Now that you know all this information and knowledge, that you can actually uh, say uh, like near future what will happen, right? So, how do you feel about the future? Yeah. <laughs> It's interesting. I sometimes say, you know, I'm an archaeologist, so I study the rise and fall of great societies. For sure. And uh, and so I think we are we are facing a really big challenge. If you look at what happened to many other societies in the past that were powerful and strong and thriving, many of them were brought to their knees or collapsed under the weight of uh, changing environmental conditions. In the past, that was often caused by people um, over-irrigating or, or, or using the land in a way where um, they stripped away the fertility of the soil. I don't think we've ever seen a period during human times of such enormous climate changes we're causing now on such a short time scale. If you look at you know, over a very long period of time throughout the entire, you know, the, the, the Pleistocene, you see, you see changes, but they're taking place over really massive amounts of time. We're, we're, we're doing all of those changes very fast. And um, what we see in the Pleistocene, even when the changes are over, spread out over a longer period of time, that's the basic effect is we see extinctions. We see many megafaunal extinctions. So the feeling, <coughs> how you feel about it as a human being, <laughs> yeah, we're knowing gonna, all these yeah, shits, you know. Yeah, well, we have we have to adapt to it. Um, I mean, one of the things that makes us human is that we are clever. We are we are un, we are able to escape from a lot of biological limitations through technology. Um, we have 
an incredible ability to adapt. If you look at what has made us, I think, so successful is that we have such a flexible diet. We can really survive and thrive on so many different types of foods, and that's allowed us to colonize the entire world and to live in every part of the world. No other species has colonized so much of the world. I mean, we're really unique. Um, and that, that's because of our intelligence and our, our flexibility and our ability to solve problems. And we now face an enormous problem, and we're going to have to actually come together and do it. Um, and I don't know how long it will take for, for everyone to really realize what's at stake. Thank you very much for responding to my stupid question with a happy ending <laughs> response. Uh, yes, um, I think as a Mongolian, uh, I could say like our politicians they don't they don't care about the global warming because maybe because we are a very less populated country and there's a lands and you know this small city about to burn a whole lot of uh, carbon. Carbon, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 1.7 billion, uh, 17 billion, Turuk, they're going to invest to purchase those different types of carbon from China and then burn it into city. And then that was just a test if we can survive after burning those uh, carbons to have less pollution. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the city uh, okay this is the uh, this is the negative part of uh, what we do and then while just telling you just uh, it feels bad so um, I want to know like uh, what's your diet like what do you like to eat you know based you study foods and uh, based on research you have done you ha- you gotta choose like different things than any other people's <laughs> like uh, maybe it's a personal question but uh, please please if you if you don't mind i want to ha- have the honest answer what's like your know, one week of like uh, normal week of a food food yeah oh i love food <laughs> um, <laughs> i love i love all so many different flavors of food i love so many different cuisines i mean um i i love I love spicy things, I have to admit, a lot. And I don't know, I've, I've had, you know, I've been so fortunate to be able to work in so many places of the world and to try foods all over the world. And everywhere I have gone, I have eaten delicious things. I am so impressed with what good cooks humans are. We are so good. <laughs> and so many wonderful foods. Um, so I actually, and I mean, if I can manage it, I actually eat a really wide range of foods. Um, I mean, I, I've spent a lot of time in Nepal, and I really love like South Asian cooking. I, I think um, it's mainly uh, like they cook vegetables so well and make them taste so good. So I love the spices and the vegetables, especially of South Asian cuisine. I absolutely adore ramen so much. Can you name them like uh, like uh, maybe with the food name, like maybe the bald name? Like kimchi jjigae, that's the yeah. uh, Korean uh, so, one, right? Well, my f- absolute favorite South Asian dish is sag paneer. So spinach, spinach and cheese with rice. I just, I just spinach love and cheese and rice. Oh uh, yeah, it's like, the best. There's no meat. <laughs> There's no meat. No. Uh, you are not a vegetarian, right? No, I'm not a vegetarian, but and I, and I like meat. Okay, <laughs> but um, I I have to admit, I really uh, if I have to pick the things I really love, um, I really love vegetables and I really love dairy. 
I, I, I've contemplated like. Uh, Can you call yourself a foodie? I don't know. I don't know if I'm a foodie. I feel like foodie. When I think of foodie, I think of people who who are I don't know judgmental or something or like want something very like picky. very picky. And uh-huh. I I am not picky about my food. I think you know some for me the best meals I ever have is when I just come home to someone's home and they cook me a home cooked meal and I love it. I love eating in the countryside all over the world. And I think that's something too. I sometimes I think of foodies as traveling from city to city and eating the best food at each city. I'm an archaeologist. I travel from rural countryside to rural. Country- countryside and I eat in people's homes and I just have the most amazing experiences and I love it. I think your third book should be about food. Yeah. <laughs> and then you traveling all around the world and eating distant cultural cuisines, right? So yeah. um, somebody needs to narrow down all those foods and ingredients and maybe relates with the genotypes and then how, why they cook that and why they consuming those foods mm. and then what's the reason behind it and all those things. I think you're the right person to initiate writing a book <laughs> about that. Um, what is the the most uh, likable bowl that we have in this country? A likable like dish, like a dish, food? yeah. Oh, um, I like arts. Arts. Mm. Can you explain it, arts into uh, into your language and then and then people who's watching it? Oh, it's like curds. It's it. like wet curds, which which in English sounds horrible. Um, I don't know how to describe <laughs> it. Uh, it's like <laughs> in English sounds horrible. It does. It doesn't sound yeah. good at all. Uh, but it is delicious and uh, and urum. I love it. It's so urum. good. Yeah. It's like I think the closest word in English is clotted cream, which also sounds awful. Like I don't. It's really that was something that's interesting to me because um, I don't know. I, I was very naive. Uh, I was coming into studying dairy products. I was so familiar with European dairy products. And I come to Mongolia, and it's an entirely new world of dairy, and and there's aren't translations because they're they're just made very differently, and mm-hmm. they taste different, and they're delicious. And um, Europe has this tradition of fungal aged cheeses, which doesn't exist at all in Mongolia, which is this tradition of lactic acid bacteria fermented dairy products. Uh, and so when you try to translate it from one language to the other, it just doesn't doesn't <coughs> sound appealing. But um, but what I really like about the dairy products I've had here, I mean, I have to admit, I'm very, I very much like the yak milk products because it's so rich. I In, just adore it. Intense, right? Oh, it's just, say? it's amazing. So when I, well, we did a lot of field work up in Hovskol and we were working with different herders who were showing us how they were making different products. It was, I was in heaven. I just got to sat there, I sat there and just <laughs> ate everything they made. And it was so good. I mean, some of the best yogurt I've ever had in my life. So it was wonderful. And um, I always, uh, I love coming back to Mongolia and getting to try all of the dairy products. That's by far my favorite. All right, all right. Uh, thank you very much for having a time and then explaining what you do and then uh, telling our audience what was your findings. And uh, now that I know that you're coming back to Mongolia once more, and then I would like to have you back and then have different questions and different responses. I'd love it. That would be wonderful. Okay. Thanks, doctor. And uh, guys, uh, today's episode uh, comes to an end, and uh, I would like to say thank you for her once again uh, representing you guys. And then hopefully this information makes your life easier. And uh, you know, easy life is impossible, but uh, once in a while, 
you gotta feel joy. So hope that uh, these moments that you pa- you invested in us um, makes you feel joyful. And then have a good day. I'll see you next time very soon. Ciao.